Today we continue our series called, O Come Let Us Adore Him, and speaking of what it means to adore Jesus during this Christmas season, based on who He is and what He does. Um, Those are the two main reasons we can ever um, bring to ourselves for having a sense and a purpose for adoring Jesus. One, based on the fact of who He is just by nature of His character, just by His title, just by all that He is and does, it brings us to a sense of saying, this is why we adore Jesus. This is why Christmas means so much. This is why it has such a great purpose in my life. It's because God is who He has said He is. And not only is He who He is, but He does great things. He is God with us. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Eternal Father, and so many other titles. Because one simple title is not enough to encompass Him. And that's why we have just that short word, God. That all that is good, holy, and perfect is encompassed in Jesus. Is is found in Him. Which brings and makes Him worthy of praise. But the fact is is that not only is God who He is, but He is close to us and He does wonderful and mighty deeds showing incredible grace in our time of need. And during Christmas time, we talk about some of those provisions that come from Christ's presence, that come from His promises. We talk about hope and that hope in the Scriptures as we looked at a few weeks ago is not wishful thinking. It's not a pipe dream. It's not wishing upon a star. Hope in the Bible is, is God's guarantee. It's something secure. It's assured. It's a sure foundation. It's a certainty. And then last week we talked about peace. And many times when we pray and hope for peace, we're talking about a removal of conflict, a, a, a removing us from the, the disturbance, a putting a wall between us, a protection between anything that would be harmful. But what we saw about peace is that God does something within us and He prepares us for His work and it helps solidify that peace. That even in the middle of storms, even in the middle of tribulation, even in the middle of battles and struggles, God secures that peace. Today we're going to be looking at the word joy. And no, I will not be using the acrostic that I was taught in Sunday school, and I get where they were trying to go, of Jesus, others, yourself, and how you know putting that together should give you a sense of joy. Um, It's a beautiful sentiment. Unfortunately, I do not find that security in the Scriptures. There is the teaching and principles, but when it comes to joy, those are not the exact same thing. But I also see in the Scriptures how joy is significantly different from happiness. I was, teaching, I was teaching the kids, and you, you probably were listening. Um, I know some people like listening to the kids' messages more than they do actually my preaching. But that's okay. Um, I, I probably admit I like that time more too sometimes. But happiness, if we're honest, when we feel happiest, it's always based on a circumstance. Always. I cannot think of a time when I was happy that it wasn't because of the circumstance I found myself in. The circumstance of a big plate of bacon and a piping hot cup of of coffee 
you know, that brings me happiness. Being at someone's celebration and party and there's dancing and, and laughing, that brings me happiness. But once again, it's a circumstance. Those moments of happiness in my life when, when I said I'd do to my wife, that was a moment of great happiness, but, but it was a, a moment. Now there's joy after, but there was a moment of happiness at that moment. There's still a lot of other moments of happiness, but I care not to share those with you this moment. But, seeing my kids born, those moments were great happiness. I could not hold back the smiles from my face, the wonder. But all of those are circumstances. But what I see in joy is something larger. When the Bible speaks of joy, it speaks of something that's not based on circumstance, but it's based on certainty. You see, happiness is dependent on circumstance. Joy is developed through our certainty. Joy is not about mere circumstance. It plays in it every now and then, but it is not based there. It is not founded upon this. And we see that God is the giver of this certainty. God is the giver of this joy. And so today we're going to be looking at the question, what does the Scripture reveal to us about the gift of joy, and what does it do that helps bring us to a greater adoration of Jesus? Because we could teach about some abstract principle, but if it doesn't bring us to a closer walk with Jesus, we've just learned some head knowledge, but it hasn't changed the direction of our heart. It hasn't changed the actions of our soul and our lives. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me. We're going to be, continue in the book of Isaiah. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, that's page 630. We're going to be in chapter 35 of the book of Isaiah. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 10, but I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we honor God in the reading of His Word, the words will be on the screen behind me, but I encourage you to follow along in your copy of God's Word. And if you do not have a copy, please take one of our pew Bibles. It's our gift to you. But this is what it says. Chapter 35, the book of Isaiah. The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a wildflower. It will blossom abundantly and will also rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord. The splendor of our God. So strengthen the weak hands. Steady the shaking knees. Say to the cowardly, be strong and do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground will become a pool and the thirsty land springs. In the haunt of jackals, in their lairs, there will be grass, reeds, and papyrus. A road will be there, and a way. It will be called the holy way. The unclean will not travel on it. There will be no lion there, and no vicious beast will go up on it. They will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk on it. And the redeemed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, 
crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. Let us pray. Lord God, may You use Your Word as only You can. Help us to learn from You today. In Jesus' name, Amen and Amen. You may be seated. So, when we're looking at Scripture, one of the things we, we constantly go over each week, because we need to be reminded of this, it's very easy to, to pick up a Bible and just read it and say, well, I don't know what that means to me, or think about it just in light of our everyday circumstance, and pay no attention to the time and the place and the reason how God gave us the Scripture in that time and place and how it's been preserved for us for even now. And so one of the things that we try to do is we try to look at some, some context, some basis for why and when and how this Scripture came into place. And here we see it came from the author, the, the prophet Isaiah, who lived somewhere between 760 and 700 B.C., a very tumultuous time in the land of Israel, in the land of Judah, a time uh, whenever the Assyrian Empire would cause the northern kingdom of Israel to go into exile, um, a time when uh, there were good kings and not-so-good kings and some that were considered evil in the eyes of the Lord, and the people were in upheaval, a time where there were tons of festivities and religious practices, but people were in, were in rebellion and distance from the Lord. And so... God has called Isaiah to speak to people and He's given them a message of great reckoning that God will bring a holy, mighty justice in their sight, in their land, and they will be able to behold it. And there will be nothing they can do to turn it back because God has spoken that this is the way of rebellion you've chosen and this is what rebellion leads towards. But... In the aftermath of such rebellion, God, in His grace and His promise, has said, I will care for and establish a relationship with a remnant. And that remnant will see my promises that though there is pain and retribution for rebellion, I am going to bring restoration. I am going to bring redemption. I am going to bring hope to them. And so we see the author and the audience and the aim, and this is the whole way of this book and where it's going. And it helps us to answer a couple questions. One, what does the Scripture say? Two, what does it mean? Three, how does it apply? And four, what am I going to do about it? Today we're going to see what it speaks to us about joy. Joy is an overarching theme in this portion of the book of Isaiah. And it's a unique placement of where it comes because Isaiah chapter 35, believe it or not, comes after Isaiah 34. Did you know that? That is how numbers work. The more you know. But if you read Isaiah 34, what you'll see is, wow, it doesn't sound anything like Isaiah 35. In fact, it's the complete mirror. Because in 34, God is saying upheaval is coming across the land. It will be a desolate place. It will be a place of an utter destruction. It will be a place laid waste by battle, by barrenness, by famine. The, the civilizations that are once there will no longer be there. Everything will be left in ruin. Sounds a little different than the promise of Isaiah 35, doesn't it? But in Isaiah 35, he comes back and says, but after, but next, after all of this time of upheaval, there will be a place of great joy, something that you can bank on, something that you will see. And it will show you that joy 
But your joy is not dependent on circumstances. It is developed on your certainty that I am the Lord and I will do that which I have said I will do. You see, there's something about joy that we need to embrace here today. Joy knows something. Joy understands something. Joy knows the greater God. Joy does not look at a weak God. Joy does not have a puny God. Joy does not have a distant God. Joy does not have a dead God. Joy knows the greater God. The God that is bigger than our minds can comprehend that is holier than we could ever know, and yet shows more grace than we could ever stand. It knows the greater God who is able to take something so desolate, so broken, and develop it and make it beautiful once again. That can bring restoration. Joy knows the greater God. And by joy knowing the greater God, it knows that God is able to make the barren blossom. God is able to make the barren land blossom. Now, I moved here from, from Arizona, and this is to say, unless you drove quite a ways, uh, days like this you didn't see very often in December in Arizona, in my part. It just didn't happen. Every now and then we'd see a few flakes, and then they'd like fall down, and then they'd go, bah, hot ground, you know. It just wouldn't happen. They'd just melt away. We would have winds, uh, rainy days, and on those rainy days it would come down such a downpour that everything just kind of washed away. But after those rainy days, there would be like one or two weeks, maybe four if the humidity was just right, where the desert around us would no longer be this bland colors of orange and brown and gold. Now, I know that people love the desert and they think it's beautiful. They love westerns and that kind of thing. And here's what I mean by that. I don't mean bland as in, how could you not think that's beautiful? If you live there for five years and it's the only thing you see for every single day, then all of a sudden you're like, yeah, it's brown mountains. Okay, I, I get it. Um, but in those days, after the rains would come and everything would settle and there were no longer there were floods or anything, you would see these just blooms happen. Any time of year, to where the, the brown cascading landscape was just like a green layer. Just really fresh. It was kind of beautiful. But it wouldn't last. Why? Because the water wasn't there. It would go away. It would get evaporated. And once again, it would just be a barren landscape. A desolate place. A place where we had, in my church, we had five members of the Sheriff's Department posse. Because if people got lost in the desert, you needed a large crowd of people to go out and find them. Because they wouldn't be able to last many days. Desolate, desolate place. In the areas of Judah, in the areas of Edom, in the place in the landscape that Isaiah is speaking about, it, it's already incredibly arid. It's incredibly dry. Jesus would go to this, these places that would be called the wilderness, where there's not much provision. There's not much out there to, to glean from. It's just being out in the wilderness. But what God has made a promise, something that can be assured, something that can be certainty, is that even those places where it seems like no one in their right mind would go out and try to grow something, would try to live on their own, God says, I'm able to make those lands 
fertile like you've never, ever known before. In this place, it will look like other places you've been to. Some people, when they read the Bible, they automatically get things kind of topsy-turvy because it seems like all the good things, all the good kings, all the good promises uh, were in the land of Judah, right? Uh, if, if, you're, if you're experienced in knowing and reading some of the Old Testament, you seem like, well, all these good people were in Judah, and even Jesus himself comes from the tribe of Judah, and so their land must be really, really nice. Well, what you need to know is that while Judah was a large, large tribe, it was actually one of the poorest of areas. That the areas of what is modern-day Lebanon and Carmel and the northern kingdom of Israel, these were the richest of areas. These are the areas of the richest resources where the Jezreel Valley spans for miles and miles around of just fertile, fertile farmland. But Judah was rolling hills of nothingness. And when God says, I I'm going to make this dry land be glad. I'm going to make it rejoice. I'm going to make it blossom and have wildflowers all over it. And it's going to rejoice with singing. And, it, and the very glory that you've seen in Lebanon where all these cedars and trees are growing, it's going to be here. And the splendor of Carmel, these mountainous areas where the snow waters the land and Sharon where these beautiful flowers blossom, they will be here. Why does He make such a promise? He wants His people to know that there is no impossibilities with God. And even the most destitute and desolate of situations, God is able to work mightily in. That is something that brings not happiness for the moment when it happens, but joy in the waiting until it happens. It brings joy in the waiting I think about these promises and we get to look back and say, yeah, wow, and Jesus came and He totally transformed the landscape. He totally transformed the peoples and the cultures and, 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 and this may be speaking about something a little more spiritual than it is physical. But here's the thing. God has given this promise and it's going to be 700 years before Jesus would ever come and it's going to be 2,000 plus on top of that at least before the full fulfillment of God's internal glory reigning on the land. So there is absolute waiting. And let me tell you, if you have to wait that long, sometimes circumstances grow dim. And if you're banking on happiness to make you feel whole, you're going to lose heart. But if you have joy that my God is greater and what He says He will do, though I may have to wait for it, it will happen. And I will wait on Him and I will follow and be obedient to His Word in the time of waiting. Because my God is able to make the barren blossom. Though I may not see it now, He will make the land rejoice. My God will also make the brittle bolder. See, joy knows the greater God. That God is able to take what is brittle, what is frail, and make it bolder. Prophet Isaiah says, strengthen the weak hands, steady the shaking knees, say to the cowardly, be strong and do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. You see, the people of, of Israel and Judah, they were dealing with oppressive empires around. The Assyrians were a people to be feared for a good reason. Much of their artwork in, in archaeology uh, is about kings impaling um, people on spikes. That's their artwork. Not something that you would exactly want to go see in the Louvre. 
But that was their victory. The people were fearful. They were frail. They were uncertain. They were shaking. Is God going to come through? Because they were so caught up in the circumstance. But God's Word through the prophet Isaiah is not to look at the circumstance, but to have certainty in God who is able to make that which is brittle, that which is shaking and timid, it makes them stand and walk with a little more confidence. Because they know their trust is in the Lord. What would it look like today if the church had a little more confidence? If it wasn't so fearful, if we didn't have shaking knees and brittle bones, but we were bold enough, not walking around cocky and, and acting arrogant and stuck up. That's not what I'm talking about. But able to stand in their boots and say, you know what? I may not know what all this day is going to be about. But I have certainty in my God. And He's seen the beginning and the end of it. And He knows what it's leading to in the future. And He knows what words He needs to give me. And I can trust in Him to give me those words. The Bible has told me so. And so I don't want to walk around bitter or brittle, but I want to walk around bolder. Not ambitious, but confident that the Lord has called me to live for His glory for such a time as this. The people of Israel would have to wait years to see the promised Messiah. But in the meantime, Prophet Isaiah, through the word of the Lord, is telling them that you can stand strong. You don't have to shake at your knees. Because I am able to make you bolder. Joy knows the greater God because he knows that God makes the burden blessed. Those who are burdened by their eyes being blinded, their ears being deaf, their lameness keeping them from walking, their tongues not allowing them to speak. And even people burdened by such incapacities. God says, I'm able to use those for my glory. And one day I'm going to set them free from those infirmities. One day that will happen. But to know that I have done this for a purpose. In the book of John, chapter 9, there was a man that was born blind. Born blind. He didn't lose his eyesight through an accident or a sickness. He was born blind and apparently was in his 30s at this time. So 30 years of blindness. And every day he was outside the temple gates because as a blind person, and even though he was Jewish, he was not able to go inside the temple courts. Anyone with an infirmity was held back because their life was considered not fully pure. And so every day he was there and he was chanting for just alms to make his living. And the disciples asked Jesus, says, says, well, who sinned that, that this uh, man would be born blind? Was it, was it his sin? God just knowing who, what he would do in life and just gave it to him because he was a great sinner? Or, or did his parents do something really, really horrible? And that's what they deserved. The disciples of Jesus asked this. And Jesus said, it wasn't this man's sin nor his parents' sin that caused this. This was done for the glory of the Lord. That in somehow that man's burden and God bringing healing would bring about a blessing and testify to the glory and power and the certainty that is found in the name of Jesus. And one day, those that are held captive by these infirmities will set, be set free. And they will leap 
They will be able to hear. They will be open. They will be able to speak. And they will sing with and for joy. They'll realize that while they were burdened, it was Him. It was Him who brought the blessing. Now, I know some people do suffer from physical infirmities. But I also know that there are spiritual infirmities as well. Things that enslave us. Things that hold us dear. Hold us tight. And it seems like the shackles can't ever be taken off. But when we come to the place of the Lord and we, we trust in Him, the Bible says He sets us free. He sets us out of enslavement. He redeems us. But He doesn't do it without a purpose. The purpose is it testifies to His glory. And secondly, it frees you to live in joy. It frees you to declare, I know it was the Lord who did this. God makes the burden blessed. See, joy knows that it has the greater God. That it's not some weak God. It's not some puny God. It's not some meeny, meeny, teeny God that we keep in our pocket. It's a mighty God. It's able to make the barren blossom. It's able to make the brittle a little bolder. It's able to bring blessing to those burdened. And it's able to make the broken beautiful. Look at verses 7-10. to It says, The parched ground will become a pool, and thirsty land springs, and the haunt of jackals in their lairs. There will be grass and reeds and papyrus. The road will be there. The way it will be called the holy way. The unclean will not travel on it. But it will be for the one who walks in the path. I love these descriptions. and But I'll be honest, um, something comes to mind when I'm reading it. It talks about jackals and their lairs. And I can't help but think about everything is ours, the light touches. Well, what's that over there? We don't go there. <laughs> That's where the jackals are, the outlands, not a part of the pride lands. You know, it's desolate. Graveyards and just rocks and lairs and dens. And that's the places where the jackals live. The hyenas live. That's the place where they dwell. But God says, even in those places that we would say, do not go there. He says, I'm going to do something to take what was broken and make it beautiful again. I'm going to take this city that has been broken by its sin and rebellion, I'll make it beautiful again. I'm going to take this land that is broken and make it beautiful again. I'm going to take the lives that were broken and make them beautiful again. And when I do that, those, you, won't even, you won't even think about what it used to look like. He says there will be reeds there and, and papyruses and grass. It will be a beautiful oasis. Beautiful. Not a rocky crag. Dry and desolate and broken. But not just physically. In the lives of my people, I'm going to put a way. I'm going to put a path where there was no path before. There was only a way to try to be made right with God. But I'm going to show that there is a way. And I'm going to fulfill the promise by being the provision. I'm going to come there and show them that the way, the truth, and life is found in Jesus. It will be called the holy way. There will be a road there. And it will be a road for those who have been made clean. It will not be for the unclean. 
It will not be for the one who presumes to be made right with God, but has not been made right with God. What I mean by that? It won't be for the one that is religious on the outside, but unclean on the inside. It won't be for the one who thinks that they have enough knowledge and yet has not a relationship with the Lord on the inside. It will be only for those who have trusted in the Lord. Because only those who trust in the Lord will find and see that path. The Bible tells us that broad is the path and wide is the way that leads to destruction and many travel through it. But narrow is the gate and the way that leads to righteousness and only a few find it. But those few that find it, that find that Jesus is that holy way in the city, that one that would come to die just outside of Jerusalem's gates, they will find that it it's for the one that walks clean. It's for the one that is made new. It is for the one that is, was once broken and is now put together as God's masterpiece. It is the one whose story was so messy and yet they handed the pen over to God and says, we know that we should trust you with this and I give you the pen for my story. It's the one whose heart is in pieces and yet God has mended the brokenhearted. For those... God shows them the way, that holy way, the path for them to walk. And he says, fools will not wander on it. And there will be no lion there. And no vicious beast will go up on it. And they will not be found there. But the redeemed will walk on it. See, when God makes the broken beautiful, He shows us the way. He shows us that in the walk with the Lord, there is nothing to fear. That while we may be terrified of all these other circumstances, circumstances, God says, with me, with me there is certainty. And you do not have to fear the devouring beast. You do not have to fear the fool. You don't have to fear the viciousness. Because you're walking with me. And I will protect you. I will be with you. Now, I'm not going to tell you to be an idiot. Don't go to a zoo and jump into a cage with a lion. That would be being an idiot. But what I can tell you is the one who walks with the Lord has no reason to fear anything else because their trust is in the Lord in the certainty of who He is. And as they are following after Him, he cares for them. There's the way of salvation. There's the walk that leads us without fear. And then there's the worship. When God makes the broken beautiful, there's the outcry of worship. It says, The redeemed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with an unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them. By the way, this is where you see the two pairing of joy and gladness or joy and happiness or cheerfulness. Because the certainty of the moment will be matched with the circumstance of the moment. And sorrow and sighing will flee. See, many times when the prophet Isaiah would be telling something, he would be foretelling something and he would be also forthtelling something. He would say that God is bringing an immediate resolve, a resolution to our time of need. But sometimes he would be looking ahead, not just to the mountain that he saw, but the mountains beyond. 
and seeing that there's something even greater beyond on the horizon, that God has promised and it is coming. And God gave him the ability to see that. God had given him the gift of such a, a, a prophetic telling. For the people of Israel, for the people of Judah, the desolation didn't come for them for another 200 plus years. But in 587 B.C., they were overtaken by the Babylonian Empire. They would see their brothers and sisters in the northern kingdoms taken away in Assyria, but it would be 587 B.C. before they were ever taken away. And then they would spend 40 years in exile. And they were able to return. But even when they returned, that was only a portion of the promise. That was only a portion where God said, I'm going to protect this from you. I'm going to preserve them. But at that first Christmas, God took what was desolate and He brought it life. God took what was hopeless and He brought it joy. And He says, I am the one who gives you my promises, my provision, my presence, and my power. What I ask you to do is to live in the light of joy. And the only way that you do that is by yielding to what the angels had said. Do not be afraid, for I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for a few people. For just American people. For just Jewish people. For all people. Joy enough for all people. And that comes only by the good news. I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. What is that good news? What is that sense of joy that that moves me from living my life based on circumstance to solidifying it on the certainty that God is greater? And that is the certainty that God who is who He says He is. He's holy. He's mighty. He's just. He's not to be put as this little God in a pocket. And as God, He has the ability and the right to call the shots, the rules, and set everything because He created every single thing that we see. And He sees the offensiveness of our sin. And though that is rebellion, and there is a consequence for rebellion, He being the greater God says, well, I'm just going to give up. Sin's bigger than me. That death is just too big to hold. It's just too big to handle. No, He willingly came and lived that sinless life and willingly died that death so that He could overcome both of them. Showing that He is indeed the greater God conquering sin and death through the sufficiency of Christ. And that good news of great joy is given to us as, a, as, a, as the ability to have a gift. A personal response. Where we trust in what Jesus has done for us. And in doing so, when we trust in Him, we get eternal life in the promise that While death may come, death is not the end. While sin may be battled, sin will be overthrown. And we will have one day in eternity with Him. But until that day, we get life transformed here and now. And I'm not going to live my life based on the circumstance of the moment, whether I feel like it, whether it's convenient or not, whether the the stars are aligned for the perfect moment, whether it's a good day at church or a bad day at church. I am going to live in the certainty that my God has called me to live for Him for such a time as this and that He is indeed the greater God.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank You so much for who You are. And I pray that today that should someone need to know You, that they would, in this moment, trust in You. They would see Your promise, Your presence, Your provision, and Your power. And they would place their faith in You. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.